Last week, you heard that I'm going to be heading out on sabbatical in a couple of weeks' time. What is a sabbatical? Well, a sabbatical, there's different kinds, but a sabbatical at its heart is a different kind of work. It's described by some, and in particular, with the type of one I'm going to be going on this time, John Mark Comer would call it this, it's like a trip to the hospital, more than a trip on a holiday. Although I am going to take a couple of weeks of personal holiday in the middle of that. The big goal as I go away will be to invite, in a much deeper way, greater access to Jesus into my life and relationships. So that sounds a little mystical, but my ministry, we call them ministry rather than job descriptions. There has two key elements to it. The first one and most important is what I'm called to be, personally and in my relationship with God, by far the most important. And then secondly, what I'm called to do. In the last 17 years, uh, since I was on my last sabbatical, the focus has been more and more and more on to-do. And so the focus during this sabbatical primarily will be on to-be. And so uh, I'll be going on retreats. I'll be seeking to listen to Jesus. I'll be fasting. I'll be praying. I'll seek to lead a holy life. The first two weeks, I'm going to be going on an Ignatius-type retreat. I've hired a spiritual director that will walk with me and ask me some of those kinds of questions that are a little scary to ask sometimes, but to invite Jesus in fully and more deeply and more extensively into my life. So would you pray for me as Debbie and I are gone from, it'll be from March 26th, the first couple weeks of July. Father, we come to your word now, and it's such a precious gift from you to us. We know so much about you by looking at the creation. So many of your characteristics, your attributes, are on obvious display for anyone to see. But then you also very specifically gave us the word of God, really a blueprint for your big ideas, your plan, the meta stories that are there, but also on a very, very personal individual basis, how you want us to do life, how you come alongside us in life. And so Father, as we look today at a passage that's incredibly practical, like day-to-day stuff, but stuff that we often struggle with greatly. Would you help us to hear from you, to hear from your spirit, to be open to whatever it is you have to say, and not just become more information that comes in, but information that changes how we do life. So we invite you into this. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Cracked relationships. Relationships with fissures in them, with fractures in them. We began talking about that this 
this last, last week, and we're going to talk about it again today. We introduced the idea last week, are there those people that we work to avoid? People that I'd prefer not to run into and have to spend time with. My grandma had uh, six sisters and one brother. And they were, I didn't know all of them, but I knew some of them. And they were really good people, generally speaking, except when they had a scrap with someone. And if it was a serious fight with someone, they would have an expression that they would use as their family, as they shunned that person. They would say, I'll never darken that person's door again. And we used to, you know, we used to chuckle when we would hear this because it was so incredibly sad. We didn't know what else to do. I never want to be near that person again. What an incredibly sad thing to say. Through the course of this little talk, would you have the courage to invite the Spirit of God to say, is there anyone in my life that I'm either A, not on speaking terms with, or B, that I'm avoiding, or C, the relationship, in all honesty, is just really not what it's supposed to be? Someone says, well, Scott, you have no idea how bad this particular relationship is. It can't be healed. It's a write-off. Let's see what happens in the lives of our characters today. If you have your Bible or your device, turn with me to Genesis chapter 32. We've had this big series of messages. Next week will be the last in this series, number 15. It's called Passing the Baton." the idea of the relay race. And we've been talking about the generations and how they pass things on, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there's things in these guys' lives that are just incredible acts of faith, things that we want to emulate. And today's message is one of those. There are some intensely practical things that we want to say, Jesus, help me to be like this. This is the way it's supposed to work. And then there's some things generationally in these guys' lives that that are not good, that are really sinful. And so there's things to emulate, emulate rather, and then there's things that we say, there's some generational sin going on that needs to be broken in Jesus' name. So We're continuing in the story. I hope you're reading these passages because the story is so cool. But if we're going to be in Genesis 32 and 33 today, but hearkening back to chapter 27, verses 41 to 45, we see Isaac and Rebekah, and they have twin sons. Isaac loved the eldest son, Esau. Rebekah loved Jacob. They played favorites. It caused incredible heartache in the family. And Rebecca decides to swindle and lie to her husband and says to her son, Jacob, listen, dad can't see so well anymore. He's getting older. 
I want you to disguise yourself like, like your older brother, your twin older brother Esau. And I want you to go and deceive your father and get from him the blessing that is intended for the eldest son Esau. And so Jacob becomes complicit in this and does this. And when Esau finds out about it, it says in chapter 27, he is so angry. He says, when dad dies and the period of official mourning is over, I'm going to murder my brother Jacob. And he is altogether serious. And so mom hits panic mode, Rebecca, and says to Jacob, you need to run for your life. Run away, and hopefully time will heal up these wounds, this severed relationship with your brother. And this, of course, and you've heard me say this many times, this is one of society's great lies. It's something that's completely untrue. Don't believe for a second that time alone heals wounds. A wound is only healed when it is properly cared for, when it's disinfected, when it's cleansed, when it's stitched up, when it's bandaged, and then over time it can heal. Years ago, we had a work day here at the church. And I was working in the room over my left shoulder, the room second up in the top there, and we, a bunch of us were working. And up comes my son, Sean. His leg was cut open fairly significantly, blood running everywhere. He'd cut his leg on a steel stud. And Debbie took him over to the camel clinic here, just a couple blocks over. And he went and saw the doctor, and the doctor looked at it. He began to disinfect it. He had Sean flex his leg and move his muscles around to make sure that none of the muscles had been severed by this two-by-four. He put seven stitches in there to, clean, to put it together, and then twice a day for I don't remember how long, we had to put disinfectant antibiotic cream on it and change the Band-Aid, all of which allowed him to heal up well. He had a scar but it healed up well. Can you imagine if the doctor had taken one look at that and said, ah, I wouldn't worry about that. Why don't you just go home and, and hopefully over time, things will take care of itself and we can just hope for the best in all this. Of course he wouldn't do that, would he? And yet this is often how we handle relationships. And I think this is the area that in a general sense in the church all over the place that we handle most inappropriately. We have a fracture, we have a fissure, we have a crack in a relationship. And we say, oh, let's just give it some time. I'm not going to deal with this. I'm going to try not to think about it. And I'm going to hope for the best. Or I'm going to avoid them. Or, and this is what an often, will, often will happen, I'll just leave this church with this issue unresolved and I'll go to another church. And of course, what happens when we do this is the wound festers and it gets worse and it manifests itself, maybe not directly, but often indirectly in all kinds of really unsavory stuff. 
But Rebecca says to Jacob, ah, just run for your life, run away, and hopefully things will just work themselves out over time. A great lie. 20 years goes by, and it seems like enough time, and in chapter 21, 31 rather, God says to Jacob, okay, Jacob, it's time to go back to your home, and I will go with you. It says in verse 31. He had tried to go one other time, but God hadn't told him to go then. And it was disastrous. But this time God's saying, go and I will be with you. This is an important part of the process. Listening carefully to what God would have us do. As Jacob is making the journey back, he's not naive like his mom. He knows it's going to take a lot more than time to heal the rift that he caused with his brother. And in that relationship or relationships that the Spirit of God is putting his finger on in your life right now. Now, he may not because you you may have done and been very obedient in this area, but there may be a relationship or relationships the Spirit of God is putting his finger on right now Are you the one that caused the rift? Or did it take two to tango, which is normally the case? Or were you the one that was just really on the receiving end? Now, we looked at a number of things that allowed for and helped with healing in the relationship last week, looked at it, between Jacob and his father-in-law, Laban. Today we're going to look very practically at some more things that Jacob did to bring healing to the relationship with his twin brother Esau. With that all being said, we begin reading in verse 3 of chapter 32. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my master Esau, your servant Jacob says, I've been staying with Laban and have stayed there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, men servants and maidservants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord, small l Lord, that I may find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the group who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I, have only my, I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan. Remember when he went the first time? He basically just had this shirt on his back when he went. I had only my staff when I crossed the Jordan, but now I have become two groups, 
Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, O Lord, I will surely make you prosper and make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. So there is a number of things in this passage that he does to try and restore the relationship. He plans and he prays. First thing he does is he sends messengers ahead to give his brother a heads up, I'm coming. He begins to start softening up the ground. This is a key element. No surprises. No ambushes. Sometimes people like to surprise. So let's say they go, well, I probably should try to mend the fence with this person, but they will surprise the other party so that they can be in a position of power and can manipulate things easier. Oh, I'll try to mend fences, but I want to do it on my terms. I'll talk to them when it's good for me to talk to them, but not necessarily for them. He knows enough not to try and pull a fast one here. He sends messengers ahead to greet his brother and say, I'm coming. Notice the language of the passage and how he addresses people. In verse four, it's extremely humble language. He says to the servants that are going to go talk to Esau, say this to him, my master Esau, small l Lord, capital L is only reserved for God, small l Lord, humble, I am your servant Jacob and I'm coming to see you. He begins with a posture of humility as the relationship is moving towards restoration. In verse five, he says to them, communicate to my brother that I want the relationship to be healed. I've learned some things over the years, Esau. He gives Esau some time, some preparatory time to begin to think and to process. There's great wisdom in this, great wisdom in this. No surprises, no ambushes, gives his brother some preparatory time to begin getting himself in the proper frame to receive his brother. If you're dealing with someone with whom relationship healing needs to take place, normally the best approach is face-to-face. And ultimately that's where you want to end up if not at least initially. Initially is usually the best way. Sometimes, depending on the person and the circumstances, you understand it's going to come to a face-to-face talk, but first of all, I wanna send a letter or maybe a phone call or an email or a trusted friend that can help prepare that person for the face-to-face talk. And the letter should not be about all the issues. You never want to do that in email. That's a huge mistake. Huge mistake. 
It should be a very brief email, a very brief letter that just conveys your desire to be one with your per- that person again. Hey, I know we've had some issues. Would you allow me to come together with you face to face? Because I'd like us to I'd like us to move towards healing our relationship. When could we meet? Notice another thing here in verse 7. The guys come back after talking to Esau. There's no message from Esau saying, I've chilled out. I'm ready to meet with you, just like mom said. No, there was none of that. No, the message that came back was, Esau is coming to meet you, and he's bringing 400 men with him. And it says that Jacob is afraid. Jacob understands, I may still die in this action. And so he divides his family and his resources into two groups because he says if one group gets slaughtered or taken into slavery or whatever, at least the other one might get away. And so he's deathly afraid, but he continues to move forward because God has called him to do this. In verse 9, he prays. Notice the components of that prayer. There is obedience. I am doing what you have told me to do, God. Would you help me? He asks for help. He mentions God's promise to build him into a great nation. Right when we started in this series in Genesis 12, God makes a promise to grandpa, to Abraham. I'll build you into a great nation. From your lineage, all the peoples of the world will be blessed. He reiterates and reaffirms and amplifies that promise God does a number of times in the next several chapters. Then when it comes to Isaac, his own dad, Jacob's dad, he does the same thing. He does the same thing with Jacob later. And in his prayer, he says, I remember the promises of God, the God who keeps his covenant, the God who keeps his word. And I know you're going to be with me. He's very humble in the prayer. He says, I'm unworthy of your mercy and grace. And so many times in this series, we have talked about this this flooding type of mercy and grace that comes from God to us. Mercy and grace that he didn't deserve, that we don't deserve, and yet God, who's a gracious God, gives anyways. Let me just warn you that in trying to heal a relationship, so let's just say God's put his finger on this person that you know there's a deal with, you got to deal with this, and God's led you to do that just like he's led Jacob to do that. You just need to understand something clearly. And this passage illustrates this. In trying to heal this hurt relationship, you might get hurt. Because at this point, he has no guarantees. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He's afraid. All he knows is that his brother's coming with 400 men. And this might cost him his life. 
But as God has led him to do this, he presses forward. And friends, as God puts his finger in your life, you need to press forward. And this will take humbleness, and this will take courage. But you'll be better for it. Now someone might say, wow, he just prayed because he was desperate. Well, there's some wisdom in praying when you're desperate. I think it's a good thing. And it may be true, partly what you're suggesting. But what's equally true is as we read the passage, he was obedient and God does not rebuke him for praying like this. He was humble, he was courageous, he was obedient, and he gets the thumbs up from God as he's going. In verses 13 to 16, I hope you'll read, we can't read all this stuff, but if you, if you could read this on your own, there's so much cool stuff. So in verses 13 to 16, he gathers this huge gift for his brother, and he sends it, herds of animals, to him. We begin reading then in verse 17 of chapter 32. He instructed the one in the lead. When my brother Esau meets you and asks, to whom do you belong and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you, then you are to say they belong to your servant Jacob. There's that humble language again. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau and he is coming behind us. Then he instructed the second and the third and all the others who followed the herds, you are to say the same things to Esau when you meet him. Be sure to say your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts. I am sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, so that he, but he himself spent the night in the camp. So as you read the text, it would seem obvious to me that there is spacing between the gifts, that there's three layers of gifts that goes on here. And he's seeking to pacify his brother and not antagonize him. And he's sending waves of gifts, at least three waves of gifts. And he wants to keep reinforcing by doing this, the message of reconciliation, but also restitution. Let me begin to start repaying you for the wrongs I've committed. Well, someone says, isn't he just trying to bribe his way out of this? Well, I don't think so. Because again, I don't see God rebuking him for doing this at all. And we read later in chapter 33, his brother, is emo, he's almost indifferent to the gift. So I've got lots of stuff myself. I don't really need this stuff. He obviously, his love language wasn't the gift of giving. Um, when we wound someone and take something from them, it takes more than just saying you're sorry heal the wound. There needs to be restitution that's part of the equation. Did you notice something else? In verse 19, like I said, there's three different leaders, I'm guessing three different layers of gifts. He sits all these guys down and it's the other people that are going along as well. And he very carefully says to them, here is the message I want to communicate. 
I want you to be absolutely clear on what you're to say and how you're to say it. Don't miss this lesson. It's an important, important lesson when it comes to healing. Redundant, clear communication. Redundant, clear communication. Redundant, clear communication. It means that you share the same clear message over and over and over again. What do people do when they fight and wound each other? What happens? They inevitably communicate very poorly. They get off topic. When they're fighting, they make it personal. They don't listen to one another. They don't appreciate what the other person is trying to say. They don't really, really grapple with the points they're making. They're spending their time thinking about their rebuttal rather than listening to what that person actually has to say. I see this all the time. I watch as two people fight in front of me. I sadly see this in myself. The need for clear, redundant communication. Very important. If you want healing, the message must be along this line. I will own my own wrongs. I know I didn't do everything here, but I will own my own wrongs. I am genuinely sorry. Not in some vague way. Oh yeah, I did some stuff. I did this, and I did this, and I did this. Very specific. I own my wrong stuff. I am sorry. I have no excuse. It's not somebody else's fault. It's not the culture's fault. It's not the internet's fault. It's my fault. I blame no one else. Last week, it had come to my attention that someone had done something that hurt me deeply. And it would just been easy to avoid that. I'm going away for a period of time. Ah, I'll just let it go. But I, I asked them to come and see me. And we talked. And I said, you know, this happened... I've, it's come to my attention that this and this and this happened. And this hurt me. And wow, I could not have been more impressed with that person. They were humble. They owned their stuff. They didn't make any excuses whatsoever for what they've done. They said, I was wrong. I'm sorry. And then they said, is there anything I can do to heal stuff? Is there anything else I need to do? Well, this is the kind of heart we're called to have in Christ. And friends, that kind of living takes courage. It takes guts to live like that. It's done in the power of the fullness of the Spirit. After that 
he crosses the river Jabbok and has an encounter with God. You're going to see a picture of the river Jabbok in modern-day Jordan. Um, I'm not going to comment on that in the story. I'm just going to say this. This is a picture Debbie and I took when we were in Jordan and studying in Israel. I, I just throw that picture up there. I don't know if that's the exact spot where this took place, but it's a place where you could cross the river Jabbok. I put that up there simply to make this point. This is not just some story. This is historical fact. It took place. It took place in a real place, in a geographic location. There is a river Jabbok. There was an Esau. There was a Jacob. And this stuff actually went down. And we'll talk about what happened with God in that encounter with Jacob some other time. Chapter 33, beginning in verse one. Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. He put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and their children next, Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. He goes ahead of the crowd, but then right behind him are his family, the women and the children. You know, it's hard. It's hard to be angry at an innocent child. I use the word innocent. (laughs) It's hard to be angry at an innocent child. And so he sees, Esau sees his brother but he also sees this little herd of innocent kids. What can be done? Turn down the temperature on the relationship. What are the practical things that can be done to turn down the temperature on the relationship? You know, somebody in my life that's just a master at this, I've seen it so many times. Is Brian Polsky. He's so good at this. I've been in the room with him, I don't know how many times in the last 25 years, where someone comes in and they're mad, and probably he and I did something wrong, I don't know. But he'll just, he just, right at the front, he just owns his stuff, owns our stuff, whatever, and just sincerely lowers the temperature in the room. And so often I've seen him do this. Humble, humble. And then some real healing gets to take place. So he humbles himself. It says seven times he bows down. This is a bit of a cultural thing, but it's more about the attitude. He comes with the desire to humble himself and to be right with his brother. What do we need to do to be humble in this situation? Bring healing. And I'm talking about sincere humbleness. You don't want to fake this, okay? (laughs) You fake it, it's really obvious. How can we show respect? He was showing respect at every point in this endeavor. Because let's be honest, In the relationship with these people, we were probably disrespectful to them earlier, right? So now is the time to be respectful. How can we make the gesture or gestures that we've been reluctant to make because of our pride? 
and we don't want to do it, and this cracked relationship continues and festers, it eats away at us, it manifests itself in all kinds of ugly ways. We're yelling at the kids, we're angry at work, we can't enjoy our holiday, all because we had that fight with so-and-so six months ago, and we won't humble ourselves and make things right. You know, God says some really, really strong stuff, in particular in the New Testament, about people who are not willing to forgive or to offer forgiveness. 20 years ago, Esau wants to murder him. He's, he's angry, he's white hot and mad. Now because of all that's gone on, verse four. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Pretty cool. You know, if Jacob had done none of these things, what would have happened? I don't really know. Would Esau have taken his 400 men and tried to kill him? Maybe. I think God probably would have prevented that, but if he hadn't done any of those things, would Esau have tried to kill him? Maybe. If Jacob had just assumed that his mother was right and that time would take care of this and he'd approached him, I think he would have found out the emptiness of that approach and he would have been sadly mistaken. I'm guessing that this scene would not have played out like verse 4 portrays itself if he hadn't taken the steps to heal the relationship. I need to say this to you. When God leads you to approach someone to bring restoration and healing, and you do the, the things that are mentioned that we talked about last week, that we talked about today, and you just, God leads you and you say, God, what would you have me do? I'm in, I'm going to do it. And you do everything in your power to heal the relationship. There is one thing you can't do. You can't control the other person's reaction. Why it says, Paul says in Romans 12, if it's possible, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. He understands clearly when we're called on by God to approach someone and say, God, would you help me? God, would you forgive me? Would you help me to make things right? Would you help me to restore peace and reconciliation in this relationship? The other person may not come along for the ride. That's why he says, if it's possible. But we do everything that God shows us to do and we try to bring healing. But if they will not respond, we have to listen to Jesus very carefully at that point about how many times do I carefully approach them? Because sometimes when they are not willing or not ready for whatever reason, if their heart is hard, Sometimes to continue to approach them can just make it worse. So you have to listen to Jesus really carefully. And at that point, don't feel guilty. The temptation will be to have some false guilt. This is not from God. If you have listened to him and done whatever he's encouraged you to do, that guilt is not from God. If they will not respond, I'll never forgive you or I'll never apologize. All you can do is pray for them. There's been a number of people in my life that I've had to forgive 
that will never apologize. I'm guessing. But forgiveness is something good we do for ourselves. It's a really good thing. And if that's the case with these people, all you can do is pray for them and be open to what God might do. Continue to show the love of Christ to them. It says in Matthew 5, for, for those that hate you and despitefully use them, use you, pray for them and pray God's blessing on them. Now someone says, well, Scott, uh, this happened so long ago. We hurt each other so bad. I could never make things right. I just say to you again, don't believe that lie. It's not too late. There has not been too much water under the bridge. It's never too late to say, I was wrong. I have no excuse. I did this, I did this, I did this. I apologize. I am sorry and I would like to make amends and I would like to be your brother again. I believe God will honor that. I believe God will help patch up the crack. I'm going to invite everybody to bow their head and close their eyes. Yeah. And so, if the Spirit of God has put his finger on that person or persons in your life, that the relationship's not where it's supposed to be, or you're not on speaking terms, or you're avoiding them, whatever the case is, what are you going to do about it? I want us to take a moment to pray and say, Jesus, is there anybody like that in my life? What do you want me to do? Because I'm willing to do it. I'm afraid, but would you fill me with your spirit and show me what to do? And I will have the courage to do it with your help. Let's pray silently for a minute, and I'll say amen, and then we're going to sing.